You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. So, as again, this, passage, this sermon is called a, a faithful ministry. And so thinking about faithfulness, Steve Lawson in his book, The Kind of Preaching God Blesses, he tells of something that Donald Gray Barnhouse once said. So in talking about that in his book, Steve Lawson says, Years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, delivered a message that aired on CBS radio. In this nationwide address, the noted Bible teacher speculated about what would be the most diabolical strategy that Satan could conspire against the church in the years to come. To the astonishment of many listeners, Barnhouse imagined that all of the bars in Philadelphia would be closed. Prostitutes would no longer walk the streets. Pornography would, not, would no longer be available. The streets would be clean, and all the city neighborhoods would be filled with law-abiding citizens. All swearing and cursing would be gone. Children would respectfully say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. Every church in town, Barnhouse added, would be packed to overflowing. There would not be one church pew that could contain one more citizen. What, you ask, could be wrong with this? Barnhouse then delivered the knockout punch. The deadliest, most diabolical danger, he said, would be that in each of these filled-to-capacity sanctuaries, Jesus Christ would never be preached. In these pulpits, there would be much religious talk, but nothing said of the supreme authority and saving work of Christ upon the cross. There would be mention of morality, but not Christ. There would be expressions of cultural concern and political commentary, but no Christ. There would be positive thinking and inspirational stories, but no Christ. There would be the external trappings of Christianity, but no internal reality of Christ. The most diabolical ploy of Satan would be for churches to be bulging at their seams, but no proclamation of Christ and him crucified. With this deadly silence, people would never learn of Christ. Thus, they could never know or follow him. And two, just, just before finishing this quote up, uh, Steve Lawson will go on to say that, that really much of this is seen in churches today. Um, and I think in, in those churches described by Barnhouse, uh, that many of them would say, no, no, Christ is taught here. Christ is preached here. But in such churches as described by Barnhouse, uh, Christ would be preached as a means to an end, as opposed to being the end in of himself. And a Christ who is a means to an end instead of being the ends is not the Christ of the Bible. And so, no, Christ would not be preached in those places. Uh, they would fit, and uh, the application of what Barnhouse says would, would apply to them. 
So again, Steve Lawson goes on and he says, what Barnhouse feared has in large measure come to pass in our present day. In countless houses of worship across this nation and around the globe, there is much preaching, but the truth is that there is little proclamation of Christ. There is much empty rhetoric, but little reality of the suffering Savior. These churches preach everything except Christ himself. Tragically, too many churches and pulpits have everything except the main thing. Brothers and sisters, again, it's true. Too much preaching in this world, and any preaching really is too much, that is watered down, uh, that is oversimplified in an attempt to attract people. Measuring success like the world measures success instead of measuring success according to God's word. God has made known the desires for his church and so how we should count success in fulfilling what he desires. And that's, that's why we've been going through First Timothy, looking at what God desires for his church. He's made it known, and he's made known the responsibility that he has given to his church in that. And again, that responsibility is to be faithful. We are to be faithful in everything. In the doctrine of the church and in the practice of the church, we are to be faithful. And so we must recognize that the Lord calls us, North Valley Baptist Church, to be a faithful church to all of these things. To be a church where Christ is indeed preached, the Christ of the Scriptures. And that we would follow Christ in everything. So that our doctrinal proclamation, that our practice and who we are in the lives we live as well, would all be faithful to God and to his word. As we've been going through 1 Timothy, the past few weeks we have seen Paul give Timothy instructions concerning specific people within the church. Uh, we saw him giving instructions on caring for those who would be considered genuine widows within the church. And, and then we saw him give instructions on caring for the elders, the pastors of the church. And then last week, as we began chapter 6, we saw in verses 1 and 2, Paul's instructions uh, for those who are slaves in the church, that, that those who are slaves, they should have uh, what attitudes they should have towards their masters, that they would honor their masters. And then we continue there in chapter 6, and we saw in verses 3 through 10, Paul turned his attention back again to the false teachers that had wormed their way into the church. And we saw there that their motivation for how they were leading and what they were preaching was greed. And so Paul then discusses greed and contentment. And as we pick up the text here this morning, uh, there's a shift now in the text. And we see this with the word, but. And then as Paul then addresses Timothy. Uh, so he's no longer giving instructions about others to Timothy, but now Paul's instructions are directly to Timothy himself. And so let's, let's look at this as we, we read the text together here in chapter 6, starting again in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, 
and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Uh, So Paul here, again, specifically addressing Timothy, he addresses him in contrast to the false teachers. And so everything Paul has been saying about the false teachers in the last section is not to be able to be said of Timothy. As he says, but as for you, this is everything about the false teachers, but as for you, O man of God. Uh, The false teachers, they taught what was in contrast to the doctrines that the apostles taught. Uh, They taught uh, what was not in alignment with the sound or the healthy words of Jesus Christ. They taught what was out of step with that which was in accordance with godliness, or you could say of of piety or uh, of, of the fear of the Lord. The false teachers were puffed up. They were conceited. When really, though, they they understood nothing. They were morbid in mind, loving drama, having an unhealthy craving for controversy and for battles over words. They thought that to show a degree of piety would be gain for them. And so they were motivated by their greed. And by their greed, they wandered from the faith. So again, that that was the false teachers. Timothy was not to be that way. Instead, Timothy, being a man of God, which would refer to him as a a genuine worshiper of God, or or maybe the reference too could could be as a chosen leader or uh, as a servant of God, as we see how that phrase is used in the Old Testament. I really think, though, that this is pointing to Timothy, uh, pointing to his genuine faith as a, a true worshiper. And so as such, he was to avoid all the things that the false teachers were entangled up in and and avoid those things at all costs. Matter of fact, Paul commanded him here, flee from these things. And the verb tense of the command flee indicates that Timothy was to be continually fleeing from these things. Greed and the temptation to be discontented and all of the evils that that come along with that are constant threats to the worshiper of God. They're constant temptations. It is the fool who thinks that he has risen above the temptation to be discontented in his life with what he has and so lets his guard down. But wherever such temptation may lurk, The worshiper of God is to flee such temptation. He's to flee these things. For greed is a powerful driving force that, as we saw last week, Paul discussed, leads to all kinds of temptations and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And two, again, before giving him this command, he addresses Timothy as a man of God. Matter of fact, he says, oh, man of God. 
Some translations, uh, so depending on what you have before you, uh, may not translate the word oh. may just leave it out altogether um, due to uh, what, the, what it may convey in modern English. But its purpose for Paul was to convey his passionate concern. Oh, man of God, this is what you are, and because you are such a man of God, you must flee these things. You must run away from them. So Paul is expressing his concern, his passionate concern for Timothy in this. That Timothy must indeed flee from greed and all the wickedness that's entangled in it. And as he's telling him to flee, what does it look like to really flee from greed and the love of money and all those evils? Well, just as repentance, too, is not just a, a turning away, but also a turning to, namely turning to Jesus by faith for our right standing before God and, and for the forgiveness of sins, so, too, uh, to flee uh, that negative action must also have a, a positive action. That it's not just fleeing, but one must also pursue. There must be that positive thing, pursuing what is God's will. Uh, it is much like what Tim Challies talks about in his article on sexual purity called Positive Purity, in that he says this, sexual purity has two, has two components to it, the turning away and the turning towards, the stopping of one kind of behavior in the beginning of another. I have seen in my own life that I am never far from making the focus of sexual purity all of those negative commands, don't do this. Don't behave that way. Don't carry on that habit. And I think we sometimes send the message that if we simply stop all of those evil habits, you will be sexually pure. But sexual purity is also a positive command. In fact, I think we can say that it is foremost a positive command. Sexual purity isn't just avoiding what is evil. It is pursuing and enjoying what is good. Sexual purity is not ultimately turning away from sin, but delighting in God's gifts. The final purpose is not to stop pursuing the bad stuff, but to pursue and enjoy the good. And again, I think what is clear in what he says here and, and, and what he goes over in, in the article as a whole, that he is saying that it is right and necessary uh, to turn from all the immoral behavior that is sexual immorality. But he says that sexual purity is much more positive than that, and I think he's right. It's pursuing what God wills. It's pursuing the gifts that God has given that we are to enjoy. And so even though I'm using this as an illustration of what Paul's talking about here in the text, just then to make a side note on sexual purity, let me say then, husbands, pursue your wives, and wives, pursue your husbands. And those of you who are single just as the rest of us much, pursue joyful obedience to the Lord. That's what we are called to. And so as we, we see here in the text, uh, Paul tells Timothy to flee from greed and all of the, the evils that go along with it. But just like everything else the Bible calls us to flee from, whether it's idolatry or youthful passions, or again, like Tim Challies points out, sexual immorality. Fleeing from these things, the negative aspect, is just one part of it. 
We also need to incorporate the positive, the pursuit of what God has given, the pursuit of what God's will is. And so here, Timothy is supposed to flee from greed and and the love of money and, and all of the evils that are in the pursuit of that. But also then, Paul commands the positive, commanding Timothy to pursue. And pursue what? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. If one is indulging their desires, if they're driven by greed and discontentment, then they cannot be pursuing righteousness. We who believe upon Christ for our salvation, we have then, by faith in Christ, a right standing before God. Uh, We have a righteousness that's not our own, but the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And so that's our, our standing before God in Christ. But we who are saved, who have this righteousness, We are then to be growing in the pursuit of righteousness in the practical living out of our lives. So then in this sense, pursuing righteousness is doing God's will. Pursuing righteousness then is keeping God's commands. Also then to flee greed and and all of its evils. We must also then pursue godliness. Now, every time we've seen this word, godliness, here in 1 Timothy, and, and not even just 1 Timothy, we can overflow going backwards into first, or 2 Peter. Uh, every time we've seen this word recently, it's been the same word that carries the idea of reverence or piety, uh, the fear of the Lord, or the proper worship of the Lord, the desire to please God in what we do, and so results in living a life of, that is dignified, Uh, a life of moral uprightness in every way. And so really, if you are pursuing righteousness, then you are pursuing godliness. You're pursuing this piety, this this fear of the Lord. And really, one is the external, the, the righteousness, and the other is the internal, the piety. And then two, in fleeing greed, Paul commands for Timothy to pursue faith to pursue trust in God. Trusting God is God-centered, where greed is me-centered. Trusting God is, is resting in him, even if my needs are not met the way I think they should be met. Greed is my effort to obtain what I think I'm entitled to where trust in God gives God all of the glory for all that he has done and all that he is doing and recognizes that whatever it is I have, however much or however little, is all really not what I'm entitled to, but is all by the grace of God. And then next, Timothy is to pursue love. And again, if you're pursuing your greed and your discontentment, then you you can't be pursuing love. Well, why? Because greed thinks of my own will and my own interests above others. Where love for God submits to God's will. And love for others thinks of the interests of others before my own. And therefore, in that way, love is following the example of Christ. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. 
Paul then also tells Timothy to pursue steadfastness in pursuing their greed and their discontentment and all the temptation and evil desires that go along with that. Paul says that these things led the false teachers away from the faith. They, they weren't steadfast. They, they did not persevere. They did not endure. But pursuing steadfastness uh, then is, has a, a determination to serve Christ as opposed to greed. And all those evils, which really is just self-serving. It's not serving Christ. And lastly, Paul calls Timothy to pursue gentleness, uh, this kindness in humility. Uh, the opposite of this would be one who is overbearing and demanding their rights. But this gentleness is one who is sensitive towards others and lays no claim to their rights. And so as we see these things that Timothy is to pursue as he's fleeing from all that the false teachers were entangled in, we see these things are really the marks of a mature and maturing Christian. Every true Christian desires to be separated from every action and every attitude that is displeasing to their Lord. And so these are the things that Timothy was to flee from. And these are the things of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness that he is to pursue and that each one of us are to be pursuing. And then in verse 12, Paul commands Timothy to fight and he commands him to take hold of. First, he commands Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. Uh, the word for fight here is where we get our English word agonize. And, and this can be used of any kind of struggle, uh, either in uh, an athletic competition, the struggle uh, to contend with another, or a soldier's struggle in battle. Uh, some argue that the metaphor that Paul is, is going for here is that athletic struggle in, in, in competition. Uh, but honestly, I'm not so sure that's the case. I think it makes more sense in the context to say that he's, he's picturing a battle. He's picturing a fight. Because there is a fight. There is a battle of the faith for the body of truth that makes up the Christian faith, which no less includes the gospel. As Timothy was there in Ephesus to stop the false teachers from teaching their false doctrines, and in doing so, he had to flee from everything that ensnared the false teachers, pursuing God's will in his life. Uh, to fulfill what he was put there in Ephesus to do, he had to then fight the good fight of the faith. And really, this is a battle we all are to take up. Every Christian in this way is called to arms. You know, we just discussed on Wednesday night uh, just that there is all this atrocious false religion that, that is sweeping people into their deception. And so we who know the truth must stand on that truth. We must proclaim that truth. We must fight the good fight of the faith as well. We must recognize that there is a real enemy. There's a true source of this demonic teaching and lies that are out there that oppose the gospel. And therefore, there is a real spiritual battle to be fought. Too many expect the Christian life to be uh, an easy-peasy bed of roses. 
you know, that, that I trusted in Christ, and so, you know, I'm good. As much, you know, as people have said, it's like fire insurance, you know, and it, nothing else matters what I do or how I live or, you know, I, I don't have responsibility after that because I'm, I'm, I'm saved, right? It does, it's all by grace. And, and so any call to responsibility or obedience, that, that's legalism. No, it's not. When we are saved, for sure, we are not saved by works. But all we have to do is look at Ephesians 2. We are saved for works. And there is a responsibility laid on us to serve our Lord and to give ourselves an obedience to him and to stand up and, and take up the fight that he calls us to for the truth of his word. We are all called to that. We have responsibility when we are following he who is our Lord to live for him in every way and serve him even in the fight for the truth and that we take up that fight for the sake of those around us and we take up that fight ultimately for the glory of God. And then we see that the next thing that Paul commands Timothy is to take hold of eternal life. This doesn't mean that Timothy didn't have eternal life. <laughs> it doesn't mean he wasn't saved. Uh, of course he was, clearly in everything that we've read in this letter and what we've read about Timothy in introducing this letter. Uh, but when speaking of eternal life, there are two things that are often in view. Uh, yes, it refers to uh, that life in that day when we live in the presence of the glory of God for all eternity. And that day we, we so look forward to. But it also refers to the quality of life we live now. Living in view of that day now. And so really the truth of the matter is that we begin living that eternal life that God has given us. We begin living it now. We're not just waiting to live it when we're in eternity. We have eternal life. We live out that life in view of that day when we are in the presence of our great and awesome God. So we live lives that are affected by living in view of that eternal day. So we take hold of eternal life in that sense. Uh, the false teachers, uh, they didn't live in view of that day. They lived in view of what was right in front of them. Uh, they lived in view of what they could grasp in, in the here and now. Uh, they were short-sighted, living for what cannot last and what cannot ultimately satisfy. Living for those things that, as Paul said, led them away from the truth. The man of God, the true worshiper, must live knowing that this world is not his final home. He must live setting his mind on not earthly things, but on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He must live, yes, in this world, but live as a citizen of heaven, because that's exactly what he is. So my friends, let me, let me ask you, have you taken hold of eternal life? Are you living like this world is the end all? Is your attitude in living as if there, there's nothing beyond here and now, that, that we got to get what we can in this life because that's it? Or do your pursuits and your desires reflect a life that is bound for eternal glory? You see that Paul says here, this eternal life is what Timothy was called to. This is referring then to God's effectual call to salvation. All who have eternal life have this call from God. God has called us, and so we believe. 
also of this eternal life, Paul says that Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Some argue what that refers to. Does this refer to the confession that Timothy made at his baptism? Or does this refer to the confession he made uh, at his ordination? Uh, when we read earlier about the council of elders that laid their hands on him? Uh, in either case, whatever it might be referring to, this demonstrates Timothy's accountability of his confession of faith. Confessing Jesus as Lord and confessing salvation through him alone, again, we have responsibility. Having been saved, we carry this responsibility in our living out of our faith and in our service to our Lord. And then in verses 13 into verse 14, we see that Paul commands Timothy to keep the commandments. And Paul here uh, expressing the need for Timothy to, to keep this command in such a way that, that he's, he's actually flexing his apostolic authority and doing it in such a way that it's almost like he's verbally taking Timothy by the shoulders to grab his attention, that he would see the seriousness and the need, the necessity for him to obey the commandment. Saying, I, I urge you, I, I charge you, I'm commanding you to keep the commandment. Now, in reading this, though, we need to ask, well, what commandment is Paul charging Timothy? Is he commanding Timothy to keep? And there are many suggestions that are made. Some argue what's in reference here is the gospel command or repentance and faith. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's it. Others say it refers to a, a command given Timothy at his baptism or his ordination. While some others say it refers to uh, the body of commandments that Paul has given him throughout this letter. And then some say, no, this is the body of commandments uh, that Paul has given him in verses 11 through 12. And at least to some degree, that's where I lean. I think this commandment refers back to verses 11 through 12, to flee all the things that the false teachers were entangled in, to pursue righteousness uh, and godliness, pursue faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Pursue those things as you flee from greed. Fight the good fight and take hold of eternal life. I think that's what's in reference here. But even then saying that, as you, you look at those commandments, and the weight of those commandments and what they would be calling Timothy to, uh, specifically even just thinking of fighting the good fight, that, that would really encompass everything that Timothy was charged with doing there in Ephesus. Uh, that would cover everything that's in this letter. And so we see here Paul urging Timothy to keep the commandment and basically then what he's calling Timothy to is to keep the commandment to be faithful, to be carrying out the charge that he has there in the church of Ephesus. To lead the church faithfully, to lead them away from the false teaching, to establish in that church what God desires for his church. See, God's plan in this world, during this age, is the church. God's Spirit working through his people who follow and rest in Christ, who are making Christ known. God's plan is his church. 
and his church was already identified as God's household. It belongs to him. And so it's so important that the church be all that God has desired for his church to be. And therefore, it's necessary that uh, the proper teaching in the church, and and therefore the, the church itself, through right doctrine, has the right practices that we would desire to please God, that we would be coming to him how he tells us to come to him, how he desires us to come, not, not how we desire to come. We belong to him as his church. And so for Timothy, in the midst of false doctrines and wrong practices, having infiltrated this church in Ephesus, Timothy had to realize the urgency to keep all that Paul had called him to do. And so Paul makes it clear to him that he is to, to keep this commandment, to faithfully mete out the charge given to him. And so Paul tells him that to keep this commandment, and he, he says that he, he's commanding him in the presence of God in Christ. In other words, Timothy is held accountable to God and to Christ. To God the Father, who is the one whom all life owes their life to. For only he is the one who gives life to all things. He is sovereign over all life. And he's accountable to Christ, who is the one who, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. As Timothy made a public confession of who Jesus is and the eternal life that's found in him, so too Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, confessed who he is. Boldly standing on the truth, unshaken and unmoved, just as Timothy was called to do, just as each one of us are called to do. All that Paul commanded Timothy within this letter, there was accountability for the faithful carrying out of these things in the presence of this God and this Christ. And then we see there in verse 14 how Timothy was to carry out this command, to to keep the command unstained and free from reproach. As he fulfilled his charge, the very reason he was there in Ephesus He was to fulfill everything Paul commanded without stain, without reproach. This is the same standard by which an elder would be seen as qualified to lead God's church. There was to be no blot on Timothy's life that would give the opposition ammunition against him. Uh, Timothy was to be above reproach, that there was to be no valid accusation that anyone could make against him. And Timothy was to carry out these orders in this manner until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this call to faithful ministry was to be Timothy's lifelong pursuit. That until he was taken out of this world, whether by death or in the appearing of Christ, he was to remain faithful. He was to take up the fight, the good fight of the faith, contending for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And this is what we, are again, are all called to. We are all called to such faithfulness. All called to this faithfulness being reminded that we are accountable to God and to Christ. We're to be faithful to God's calling on our lives in this world and to remain faithful till death or till Christ's appearing. 
And therefore, we must all live in view of that day when our Lord will appear. The one to whom we will all give an account for, for our lives and for our service in his church. So we must ask, did, did each of us, did we, did we strive in our service in the church and, and in our living of our lives, did we strive for his glory? And did we serve and work in his church for all that he desires his church to be or for what we desire his church to be? You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that when we give an account before our God, when we give an account before Christ at the Bema seat, that everything that was done for ourselves with selfish motives will be burned up and will not last. But only that which was for the glory of God, only building the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ will last. Christ is coming, and so we must live our lives, we must serve, and we must work in view of his appearing. Our Lord's return and all that that encompasses should motivate us to faithfulness. And Christ will appear, for sure. For his appearing, the Father will bring about at the proper time. In his timing, not ours. So until then, let us faithfully serve, striving to be the church that God desires his church to be. And we see here, as, as Paul mentions uh, the, the Father and his sovereignty over all things, uh, bringing about the second coming of Christ in his time, this causes Paul to break out into praise of the Father. And so in this praise, in this doxology, he says that the Father is blessed and he's the only sovereign. He describes God as blessed. In other words, he is content in himself. Uh, he, he needs nothing, and he needs no one. You know, I, I know it wasn't too long ago we, we made this point already, but, but still, I think it's worth making again. Uh, just the, the things that pass as worship songs, uh, or, or just the, the sloppy nonsense that you hear on Caleb or, or Word FM, uh, so much of it, presents a God who is needy, a God that the reason he, he, he sent Christ into the world, the reason he, he had this plan of salvation is because he, he needed us. He, he didn't want to go on without us. He, it's, it's, it's about us. But that's not the picture we get in the scriptures. Not at all. No, we see that God is blessed. He is satisfied in of himself. He is content with his own glory. And so he puts his glory on display, even in his love for us, in both the saving and the damning of sinners. He puts his full glory on display, demonstrating the God that he is in it all, that he is a God of wrath and he is a God of mercy, that he is a God of, of holiness and, and righteousness, and he is a God of love and mercy. It's all on display. That he's showing the God that he is. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. It's all about how great he is. And he is infinitely great, infinitely glorious. He is blessed. He is content in of himself. And Paul also says that he is the only sovereign. And he's the only sovereign because he's God. God is sovereign. 
Uh, we see a picture of that sovereignty right in the beginning, right in Genesis 1, as he speaks this universe into existence. We read in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 to 38, it says, Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And then we read in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10, God says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. According to this verse, how, how, how can God declare the ends from the beginning? How, how does God know the future? Because he's sovereign over the future. That's how. He's sovereign over it all. He is bringing, in everything that happens, he's bringing to pass all that is his counsel and the accomplishment of his purposes in everything. He is completely sovereign. He is sovereign over all this universe, all of its history, all the happenings, and all that is in this universe. There is nothing and no one, no realm of authority that is outside of his dominion. All things, all people, all governing authorities are under his sovereign reign because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's funny to me, this teaching, that, that kind of separates God's reign and rule from earthly governments. As if, yes, God put governments in place, but somehow they're autonomous from him. Uh, that is not the picture we get in Scripture. Matter of fact, in Romans 13, it says that governments are God's servants. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. All people, including government authorities, are accountable to him. And we should call them to that accountability. He reigns over all. He is sovereign over all. This God who is so great and glorious. This God, he is immortal. Nothing has been before him. And this is a God who will always be, because he is immortal, he cannot die. He has life in of himself. And this great God, he is too glorious for mere humans to approach him. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is the invisible God, only to be known through him who is the image of the invisible God, the God-man Jesus Christ. No one can see God and the essence of his immortality, no one has, no one can see him. To him belongs honor and eternal dominion, or you could say eternal rule or eternal power. And then Paul closes this doxology, this praise, by saying, Amen. It is true. We agree. Amen. This is the God whom Timothy served while directing the Ephesian church away from false teaching into the truth. This is the God to whom the church belongs. This is the God to whom uh, the leaders of the church, the elders, the pastors are accountable to. If this is the one whom the church is accountable to, and we must be faithful to him. We must be striving to be the church that he calls us to be in holiness, fleeing from the things that mark the worldly. Uh, our elders here, whoever will lead here, must flee from that which false teachers and the idolaters of this world are marked by. We all must pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. 
We must fight the good fight of the faith. Uh, We must have elders who will shepherd the church by themselves contending for the faith, for the truth of God's word, as we all take hold of eternal life, as we live with Christ's return in view, living, looking to that day when we will stand before Christ and see him as he is, not living for the, the fleeting things of this fleeting life, We are are not our own. We were bought at a price. The church belongs to this great God, the sovereign ruler over all, who is all glorious and mighty. And he is worthy of our faithfulness. He is worthy of our trust in him as he brings about what he determines as success for his church. And so let us trust him in our faithfulness. Let us live for him in everything, for all glory and all honor is due alone to him. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.